this two-part episode, Stories About Skin focuses on eczema, a common and chronic skin disease affecting up to 30% of children and 10% of adults to varying degrees. We've heard courageous stories from Jenny, the mother of seven-year-old Atticus, a young boy who has suffered from eczema since he was one month old, as well as Annie, a 25-year-old long-term severe eczema sufferer. In this episode, we break down the disease, its physical and mental health impacts, treatments and advice for parents and patients. We welcome Associate Professor Elvin Chong, Specialist Dermatologist at St Vincent's Hospital Melbourne and the Skin Health Institute and an academic at the University of Melbourne. Dr Susan Robertson, a Specialist Paediatric Dermatologist and Head of Dermatology at the Royal Children's Hospital and Associate Professor Ross King, a clinical psychologist with over 30 years' experience in private practice, university teaching, and public mental health settings. Welcome to Stories About Skin. Let's start with talking about what causes eczema. Elvin? Well, eczema is also known as dermatitis. And in this situation, we're talking about an entity called atopic eczema. This is thought to be a condition where the initial problem is a defect in the barrier of the skin. And there have been some studies to show that the defect is due to a mutation in a gene called the filaggrin gene. And what that does is it leads to permeability of the skin. So water gets out, so the skin gets dry easily. And at the same time, antigens, stuff which causes skin allergies and skin reactions, penetrate into the skin. So you have a problem with the barrier where the skin is dry, and then you have a problem with inflammation of the skin. And that's where, you know, these things that penetrate through the skin causes irritation, redness, itching. So the patients then develop areas of red, itchy skin, often in the skin folds, and it is... Uh, Quite chronic, quite debilitating, and a real problem because it is common. About 30% of Victorian infants below the age one actually have atopic eczema. What are those figures when you look at adults? Fortunately, a lot less. I think in Victoria, the figures are about 10%. So you can say that about two-thirds of these infants with eczema will grow out of it. At its most extreme, what does eczema look like? The most extreme cases of eczema, they come to dermatologists and we see, I think the worst cases are those where the whole body is red, itchy, thickened from scratching and rubbing, often secondarily infected, and that's just the skin. And the psychological aspects of it, patients are so sleep deprived, their sleep is often disturbed, they often have terrible social lives, the worst affected cases cannot hold down jobs. Basically, their lives can be ruined by eczema. Does it affect some age groups, genders, nationalities more than others? Susan? Well, eczema is extremely common in the younger age group. As Alvin has suggested, about 30% of infants, so those under one year of age, are affected by eczema. And the majority of them do tend to improve over time. We do see some variation uh, in different racial groups. And certainly people from the Asian subcontinent seem to be a little bit more susceptible to eczema, and that may be because of their inherited deficiencies in, in filaggrin. 
And Alvin touched on the the most affected areas generally are the body creases. What other parts of the body can be impacted by eczema? In little children, the distribution can be slightly different. Uh, So they often tend to have severe eczema affecting the face. And this can be from a variety of reasons, uh, frequent rubbing of the face, drooling, uh, and also foods that are contacting the face. And you've mentioned the statistics are quite high in younger uh, patients. Do they naturally grow out of it? How is it understood that there, there is less frequency once people get older? I don't know that we have any good explanations for that, except to say that people with eczema do sometimes learn how to manage their condition better uh, in terms of managing the barrier deficiencies. So by using products to clean themselves that are not stripping and removing some of the natural oils on the skin, so they're gentler, uh, and also using regular moisturizers that help to restore the barrier function of the skin, that in itself can actually prevent eczema flaring. And Susan and Elvin, do you find that most patients present to you in an advanced form of eczema, that there would be probably more people suffering from eczema that that you're unaware of, that you don't see? Look, certainly we see a broad range. I know in my practice, sometimes seeing people who have very mild forms of eczema, but they are still quite distressing for both the child and the parent, through to the other extreme where the patient has to go to hospital because they are so unwell, not just from the skin, but systemically unwell because of uh, temperature and fluid instabilities that they have to be hospitalised. I'm suspecting that you would see mostly severe cases of eczema as a practicing dermatologist, Elvin. Do you suspect that there may be more people that suffer from eczema than we know about that self-treat? Yes, I think that's quite true. Whilst I do see a range, the people who tend to get referred onto dermatologists tend to have the more severe end of the spectrum where it's difficult for general practitioners to manage them. So they come into you know, our care. Are there times of year when it's more irritating or painful for some patients? There can be a bit of a different distribution. Uh, Some patients will definitely have worsening of their symptoms in the summertime because of heat and sweating, because heat is a big trigger for eczema flaring. But then on the other end of the spectrum, there are some patients whose worst time tends to be winter because of the inherent dryness of the atmosphere and also um, the heating uh, drying out the skin. So now let's get down to how eczema can be treated. Let's start with you, Susan, particularly obviously from a children's point of view. What are the best methods for treating eczema in children? So attention to the skin barrier function is the first and foremost uh, treatment that we recommend. And this is something that I kind of liken to the brushing of one's teeth. It should be something that's done every day as a part of routine and habit because that can help to prevent uh, eczema in the future. Uh, And the mainstains are to avoid irritation, uh, irritant products to the skin. So soap is very drying and irritating and and thus not recommended. Uh, Regular bathing of the skin with uh, a soap-free wash uh, or a bath additive that's very gentle. Uh, can be helpful. Uh, And then the application of regular moisturizers to the skin all over the skin after bathing and then reapplied anytime the skin is wiped. You know, for instance, when wiping the face after having a meal, uh, a moisturizer should be reapplied at that time, uh, like you do with a nappy and nappy cream. We've heard from the mother of a young boy who suffers from eczema today. She's talked about the day-to-day routine that's required to help him live with the symptoms of eczema. As a practitioner, how do you find managing the families of patients with eczema as well as the patient? 
Uh, yes, it can be very challenging, particularly because a lot of parents are very afraid of using medicaments on their baby's skin and their children's skin. So for instance, the use of topical corticosteroids, there's a lot of fear in the community about this. They are very safe, but they're often underutilized. And unfortunately, this often leads to the eczema worsening and not being able to come under control uh, with what can be relatively simple measurements uh, to control the, the skin. So for instance, uh, if eczema is uh, treated more aggressively um, with more liberal application of topical steroid in the right places and at the right time, you might be able to prevent it from uh, progressing to a more severe widespread disease. The sound of a bleach bath sounds quite dramatic. Can you explain to me how it works and how people respond when you suggest that as an option for young patients? Yes, it can sound quite confronting, uh, the use of bleach, uh, but you can kind of compare it to the chlorine in the swimming pool. And in fact, that's one of the reasons why it's come about is that some people found that their eczema got a bit better when they went into the chlorinated swimming pool. And that's because uh, bleach and chlorine have a good uh, antiseptic effect on the skin. Uh, and one of the potential drivers in worsening of eczema flares is bacterial infection, colonisation, and then also uh, full-blown skin infections. And we don't want to prescribe antibiotics all the time to control this. So the bleach baths can be a very helpful measure in controlling the bacteria on uh, the skin and thus uh, helping to improve the eczema in combination with the other therapies. What old wives' tales and misconceptions have you come across in your dealings with patients with eczema? This is slightly peculiar, but probably those of Asian culture might relate. There's a, a feeling of if you have the baby or child uh, being too cold, uh, this will result in illness uh, for the child. But that is exactly the opposite of what we're recommending for kids with eczema. They are usually uh, overheated because of too many layers of clothing. So I'm quite frequently um, telling Asian mothers to be removed those extra layers of clothing, which is usually frowned upon by the grandmothers. Elvin, what are your thoughts about some of the alternative therapies that patients may come to you with? We've heard today crystals, dietary management. What are your thoughts? Okay, well, crystals, I have, I've not heard a single shred of evidence that crystals work in any disease of the body. Okay, so that one is, okay, um, probably not quite kosher. But dietary manipulation is is interesting because there are a lot of cultures which believe in, you know, what you eat affects what disease you have. And eczema is one of those diseases that uh, seems to give rise to a lot of dietary manipulations. So I come from an Asian Chinese background, and we believe in the concept of, or anyway, my culture believes in the concept of heat, heatiness. So if you eat heaty foods, like things that have chili or fried foods, then, you know, you will flare up the eczema because eczema is about heat. Okay, so then I remembered talking to families where they don't allow their children to eat any any chili, any fried foods, and then very bland stuff. And even soy sauce, you know, soy sauce will lead to darkening of the skin if you've got eczema. So these poor kids uh, existed on a diet of rice and chicken with no soy sauce. And it doesn't seem to do a lot to the eczema. Okay, so the reality is that I think, and Susan can fill me in on this, that eczema with dietary manipulation tends to be mainly in, is it toddlers and possible allergy to milk, milk proteins? There's a broad range of possible allergens, which may or may not be proven uh, prior to people wanting to embark upon dietary manipulation. Yeah, so not a lot of proof. 
that dietary manipulation works in eczema, particularly amongst adults. Is there a risk then for people self-treating, ending up having unexpected consequences for that decision-making? Yes, absolutely. So I think that particularly where children are concerned, the parents are desperately trying to find answers. They want to know why. Why is this child of theirs having suffering like this? And they're fixated on that there's one specific thing that is causing this. And if they can find and then remove that thing, everything will be better. But the challenge is that eczema is actually multifactorial. There are many things that can feed into and flare the problem. And speaking on the, the dietary manipulation uh, aspect, I, I am aware of one family, which we looked after in the um, hospital, who had had an extremely restricted diet, so much so this was a teenage boy, who he was severely malnourished um, so much so that we were almost having to get the authorities involved to intervene because uh, he was being told by his mother to avoid basically all foods <laughs> of nutritional value. And fortunately, we were able to rectify that by getting him treatment with uh, one of these newer biologic agents. And subsequently, as his skin improved, he was able to eat more food and that was acceptable um, to the family. And on this idea of misconceptions, what is the impact of social media and the internet on people's management and thought processes around eczema, Elvin? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think with social media, it's unpoliced information that is going out to anyone with a cell phone, okay? So the problem is that in amongst um, all this information, maybe about you know two thirds of it might actually be misinformation, things which are not quite right. But if you have someone who has no scientific training, they can't discern. So they'll look at something and they'll see an influencer saying, hey, if you got eczema, you need to use Cream X and it will fix your eczema. And you know they will know no better, so they will try it. Most of the time, moisturizers and things don't really cause a lot of harm. But if you have influencers saying things like, do not use steroids on your, f on your body or steroids on your eczema, and you believe them, then you're basically cutting out a very, very important therapeutic uh, option for no good reason. This is a problem that we're facing more and more. I have patients who come to me saying, I've got bad eczema, and I want you to treat it without using any steroid. And I'll go, well, I can't help you <laughs> because, you know, you can't use, you have to use something that works. Moisturizer only goes so far. So they're coming in with preconceived ideas about what will or won't work yes. based on what they've seen on social media. Absolutely. And then your job gets a little bit harder because you have to convince them that actually this is not quite right. And fortunately, I think most patients, by the time they come to see you, are more open to the idea that, yeah, okay, my eczema is bad enough, I'll listen to what this expert has to say. But some will just resist and, you know, keep saying, you know, you can't, you know, I only want to use a moisturizer, in which case then you're really stuck. Do you find treating young people, Susan, that social media does impact their thoughts around eczema and treatment options? I've experienced um, with young people um, that a skincare routine has become very trendy. And what tends to occur there is overuse of multiple different products, which are often unnecessary for a young person's skin. Uh, and that can lead to uh, other problems such as flaring up of the eczema, which is counterproductive to what you're usually trying to achieve. Ross, I'd love to get your spin on this. 
from a psychologist's point of view, what does the impact of external forces have on a patient's decision-making around the sorts of treatment that they might accept or not accept? I think following on from what we were just talking about, that role of social media and its impact that it might have for persons' choices that they make being guided by what they're seeing on TikTok or whatever is going to be a factor there. We have to sort of accept that and I suppose what we try to do is move towards education and harm minimisation so that what what we'll see is people getting influenced by the social media things that they're seeing and taking those as gospel, taking them as this is going to be the right sort of thing to do and I want to be like everybody else as well. On that point, Ross, I'm just thinking about some of the extreme cases of eczema that we've heard about. Physically, people's appearances are impacted and can be quite significantly impacted. Do you think the effect of that on the patient is even greater now because of this reliance, particularly on young people, of social media, how they're perceived by the outside world, not just the people that they're in regular day-to-day contact with? I think that that's really true. And I'm reminded of when I was doing my research many years ago, we got a community survey that we had. We had a little segment on the news and about the study And the next day we had about 55 phone calls of people wanting to be involved in our our study. So that sort of showed that that people were really sort of keen to be involved in it. They did see sort of the the burden, I suppose, uh, that eczema uh, imposed on them. And sort of had people who were, you know, parents ringing as well as, you know, people who were young, adult. It really sort of did indicate that people were affected by it and particularly sort of the the physical aspects of it. So the appearance was a big factor that that they noted. And I was was reminded of a girl who was working in a supermarket and she was about 16 or so. She was one of the participants and she sort of said that she was on the checkout and she'd sort of say, I was feeling like I was having a good day and then somebody just sort of said, oh, what's wrong with your face? And that impact on her... You know, and she sort of said, well, I thought I was doing all right uh, in my appearance today. And then to have that sort of just knocks my self-esteem down. And we had a few people that were talking about that sort of experience and about how they would limit doing certain things. So, for example, summertime, going to swimming pool, unwilling to sort of get uh, stripped off down to, to bathers because of you know, lesions that might be sort of there on the body. So I think it does have a real effect on how people's confidence, how they feel, and some of the choices they make, which may be about withdrawing. And we do see evidence of people from a couple big studies that have been done of the relationship between severity of eczema and depression, anxiety often as following on through as well. That's something that we've seen and noted from all of the people we spoke to today, Annie and Jenny, all reported that there were significant wellbeing and mental health issues that stemmed from eczema, which I think 
people who don't necessarily have a personal connection to eczema might not actually fully understand that there are these unexpected consequences and they can be quite debilitating, if not more debilitating than the eczema itself. Yes, yes, I think that's true. I think that's true. You know, it's not just 16-year-old checkout people in a supermarket. People are aware of it and they make choices, you know, which might be sort of uh, withdrawing or retreating sort of things rather than sort of going out there with it. So eczema, yeah, it is there and, it's, and it does have an impact on people's self-esteem, that's for sure. Ross, what can medical practitioners do to factor in the mental well-being, not just the physical well-being of their patients? I think one of the things that came out in a, in a couple papers um, was that patients needed to feel that the dermatologist or GP or whoever they're seeing around this takes this very seriously. Uh, for them, it's an everyday experience that they're living with it. And that was one of the things that came came up in these two papers, as well as with the people who were part of uh, my work as well, that they were talking about just this everyday aspect of it, the discomfort, the visibility of it, the having to explain it, and also, I suppose, their sensitivity to people's looking at them, uh, particularly, as we said before, if they've been scratching their face or their neck or so there's that visibility there. And this was this is one of those themes that came through over and over again, and they want the, the practitioners to understand how central this is to the person's sense of self-esteem and their willingness to sort of go out and live their life without sort of thinking about, oh, how am I looking, you know, maybe I'm not going to do that, I'm going to put my uh, shirt up so that it, so people can't see things uh, like the scratches that I've done and, and things like that. And there's also, I think, an element of the... The people knowing that yes, of course, I shouldn't be scratching, and to go to the to the GP or the dermatologist and and to hear that they're going to sort of say, well, yeah, I know, I know, but da da da, you know, and they might sort of say, well, I'm asleep and I wake up and there's blood on my on my sheets and things like that, you know. So that that's certainly sort of part of the story there. So understanding that, hearing that. And hearing that the GP or the dermatologist understands the struggle that it is, that it's not just to minimise this, oh, just don't scratch, you know. That's not what they want to sort of hear. Alvin, how doable is that from a practitioner's point of view? I mean, obviously you're busy, you've got a long list of patients every day, wait lists that go on for months. How do you as a practitioner factor that into your treatment of a patient? One of the things I've come to do as I become more experienced is to really, really listen. So if a patient comes in with very, very severe eczema, I don't immediately tell them what needs to be done. Okay, the first step is actually to listen to their story, to try to validate their experience, and also just give them a little bit of compassion and laxity. So if I say, you know, you need to put moisturizer on topical steroids, you know, take these antibiotics and stuff, and they come in after a few weeks and they've only done 
two things. In the past, I might have just gone, you know, well, you're not doing it properly. But nowadays, I'll, I'll say, well, that's good. Two things is better than nothing. And maybe now you can try a little bit more and just kind of move you know, build up a therapeutic relationship so I can move with them in their illness journey. And then, you know, as time goes on, they will understand more about their illness and why we're choosing to, you know, do these therapeutic interventions and kind of move along that way. So I've learned to be a bit more patient and also, you know, cut them some slack because it's actually quite tough to be a young person with severe eczema. Do you find that males and females come to you in a different way with a different perspective with their eczema or is that too much of a generalisation? It's a bit of a mixed bag, but I think males tend to not like using creams and that's a across the board, you know, it's like, all right, how, how many guys with eczema actually use an emollient regularly? I'll say 50%. You know, even the really severe ones, they, they might do it once in a while, but they just don't like it. I find that compliance, particularly uh, with topical medications, is much better in females. And it's, it's, I, I can't explain it, but it's across the board. You know, even acne treatments, eczema, psoriasis, whatever the disease is, compliance is a little bit better in females. Guys are better at usually compartmentalizing it, and they don't seek help until it's really, really out of control. Like it's you know, they can't work anymore because their hand eczema is like, you know, every time they touch something, it, it's they're leaving blood stains everywhere. Then they'll come and seek help. <laughs> you know, it's, it's a very macho thing that you don't kind of seek help until you are about to drop, you know. So a guy with bad skin disease seeking help is a, it's really, it's usually serious. Ever wondered what the Skin Health Institute does? At the Skin Health Institute based in Melbourne, we aim to improve skin health for all our patients and the research we conduct shapes clinical treatment and practice. We provide over 30,000 patient treatments each year and also deliver exceptional education programs for dermatologists, registrars and healthcare workers. We provide specialist training for visiting international medical graduates, workshops to upskill GPs and medical students, and public education programs aimed at improving skin health in the community. The Institute also conducts clinical trials and research projects that are published and presented internationally. We make substantial contributions to the worldwide clinical care and management of skin diseases, skin cancer and melanoma, and are recognized globally for our medical research. We have multiple clinics for GPs to directly refer patients to. GPs can complete our online referral form available on our website at skinhealthinstitute.org.au slash patientreferrals or email referrals to referrals at skinhealthinstitute.org.au. Susan, do you think that you become naturally empathetic to children by virtue of the nature that they are a child when it comes to treating not just the physical symptoms of eczema, but the emotional and well-being of the child as well? Uh, yes, I, I think the challenge is as, as very young people is they may not always understand why things need to be done to help them. So yes, it can be really challenging to do all the things that need to be done all the washes, all the, the moisturisers, the application of the medicated creams, it all adds to that burden of care for the family. And that in turn can lead to behavioural effects uh, for the child 
and also the family. So the sleep de- deprivation can uh, work into that as well. And then it can become a bit of a vicious cycle because uh, the eczema itself uh, can contribute to the, the behaviour and then the behaviour in turn, uh, the repeated scratching, hyperactivity, not able to uh, comply with treatment, uh, then leads to increasing severity of the eczema. And that's a very difficult cycle to break. And sometimes we do have to admit children to hospital to help families with that. So, Ross, in response to that need for medical practitioners to be more cognizant of the mental health and wellbeing aspect of a patient with eczema, what would you suggest to a patient going to see a medical practitioner if they are suffering from eczema to get to maximise that experience for them? I think one of the things we talked about before was very much getting that good collaborative relationship. Uh, so being able to he- be heard and feel that you've been heard and this person understands rather than just sort of says, well, what you need to do is A, B, C, D. Uh, it's about having that conversation. Well, what's your life like? What's, how's this getting in the way for you? What are the hardest areas for you? Let's see if we can sort of look at, look at those. There may be a bit of education that you do um, around things, maybe clarifying sort of things that they misbelieve. And, but particularly, as we said before, that you're interested in this person, that their personal uh, aspect is the important thing. As a psychologist, when I'm sort of working with people, I'm, I'm there for 55 minutes with them and it's just me and them. And so you've got a lot of time to, to be able to work towards on a number of sessions. Of course, it's going to be different for medical practitioners who have sort of got a, a, a heavy sort of load, I might sort of see five people in a day and that's be the maximum for me. And I might even drink two coffees during that time as well. So I'd actually, it's light on compared to sort of having a, a, a big sort of list of people to see during the day. Elvin, what can patients do before they come to see you with regards to their eczema symptoms and their hopes for treatment? I actually haven't thought about it. I think the practical aspects is I would like to know what they've tried. And very often patients will come in and say, well, I've tried everything. And they go, yeah, well, what does that mean? And then you have to kind of break it down. They tried what moisturizers did they use? How did they use it? What topical steroids did they use? And often they don't know names. So, you know, it'd be great if they brought all the tubes or whatever they're using and all the moisturizers and all the soaps they're using, bring it on a huge plastic bag, come in and just drop it in front of me. And then I can just say, oh yeah, I can see what you've been using and what works and what doesn't work. Okay, so that's a practical stuff. But I think more the mental stuff is to come in with an open mind to see what I have to say and just be open to, you know, um, kind of conventional medical treatments, which is basically the, the world that I live in. If they have alternative treatments they would like to, that they would like to ask me about, ask away. I'm open to the idea of what we call uh, complementary treatments. In other words, you know, if you're going to use things like herbal stuff, exclusively and ignore the stuff that works like topical steroids and moisturizers, then I'm not for it. But if you're going to use conventional treatments and add in herbal remedies, I don't mind that at all, okay, as long as it doesn't do any harm. It can often take quite some time for a patient to get in to see a specialist after symptoms have occurred. What is your recommendation to patients 
who see their symptoms ebb and flow during that time and they may have come to their GP and got the referral when things were really bad and then they come to see you and it's not as bad. How do they convey that to you effectively in an appointment? Yeah, okay. Usually when a patient comes to see me, you know, the GP has already said, okay, look, you've got very severe eczema. We're going to try some topical steroid. We'll give you some antibiotics. And there's been an improvement. And if they come and they often say, oh, I wish you could have seen me, you know, two weeks ago, it was really out of control. Uh, in which case I say, listen, I'm a dermatologist. I can tell that you've been out of control. Sometimes patients take photographs of their of their rash, and that's good. I always look at the photographs, even if they take five minutes to find it in amongst the pictures of their dogs. <laughs> Dermatologists, we're, we're very highly trained. And, you know, I think once a, once a patient understands, okay, look, it doesn't matter that it is not at its worst, you know, this doctor actually understands that it was bad. They tend to relax a little bit. What about for you, Susan? What would you suggest to parents who are bringing their children in for treatment at the Royal Children's Hospital? I think I agree with Alvin to to bring an open mind because sometimes there can be a tendency to come with some very fixed ideas about what's causing or contributing to the eczema and also uh, fixed ideas about what is and what is an appropriate treatment for a child. But uh, we do uh, work in that evidence base um, of scientific literature and do recommend treatments that we know are safe and effective. Now, talking about treatments, how have they evolved over time and at what point are we now at in terms of treatment for eczema? It's actually a very exciting time uh, to be treating eczema. Uh, I think, as Alvin would agree, uh, we've seen some recent changes in the medications that are available on the PBS uh, to prescribe for our patients, which have been life-changing. Beyond the moisturisers and barrier uh, restoration remedies, uh, we have to address the inflammation. And that's usually the first tier is the topical steroids. Beyond that, uh, we can use uh, UV light uh, treatment, which has some anti-inflammatory effects and can be very helpful for some people with eczema. And then the next tier of treatment is immunomodulatory. So treatments that help to reduce the inflammatory effects uh, within the body. And before recent times, uh, those were uh, in a class of medications known as immune suppressants which tend to be given for a number of months to allow the inflammation of the eczema to heal and then are withdrawn uh, once there has been improvement. And some people get some good long-term remission uh, from those treatments. In other patients, unfortunately, it is not that effective. Uh, and being immune suppressants, they do have some other effects, unwanted effects on the body. The, one of the newest medications that have become available is a medication called Dupilumab, which is a monoclonal antibody uh, against interleukin-4 and interleukin-13, which are uh, specific inflammatory components uh, in the pathway of atopic dermatitis. So it isn't considered an immune suppression. Uh, it's just targeting the inflammatory um, pathway of the eczema. Um, so it has been extremely effective and life-changing for a number of our patients with severe eczema. It's currently available for uh, children from age 12 and above, although it is TGA approved from age 6. On the usage for children, we've spoken to Jenny today, whose son is seven and is currently got compassionate, on compassionate grounds, been given access to this medication. What do you say to parents with children under 12 who are desperate to see them get onto this incredible new treatment? 
Yeah, it's very challenging. There are a specific set of uh, conditions that have to be met uh, in order to apply for compassionate, compassionate use of um, dupilumab in children under 12 at the moment. So it's usually through a public hospital setting with a multidisciplinary team. Uh, we have had some success in getting this for our patients in need. Uh, we do hope that in the near future that this medication will become available on the PBS from age six and above. Uh, I believe that the company is still in negotiations with PBS about that. Elvin, what changes have you seen in patients that have started taking this new medication? It is nothing short of life-changing. So let's just think in terms of, you know, how it's administered, okay? So dupilumab or dupixent is given as one injection every two weeks as for adults. So the time taken for one injection is, you know, even if you're the most tentative injector and you're injecting yourself, will be about 15 minutes. That's 15 minutes every two weeks. Many of my eczema patients would easily spend an hour a day with topical moisturizers, topical steroids, you know, baths, bleach baths, and so on. That's a time saving of ridiculous. It's suddenly they're just spending a fraction of their time treating the eczema and getting a fantastic result. So the thing that my patients always tell me about after they've used it for a few weeks is, I am no longer itchy. You know, it's like putting a frog in a pot of boiling water, in a pot of water and turning the heat up slowly, you know. So these patients with eczema often have had itch for such a long time. They're no longer that aware of it, but you can see evidence of the itch everywhere. There's blood in their sheets. There's blood in their clothes. There's scratch marks all over their body. They're just used to it. And often it's very quirky when you do that quality of life survey. They go, actually, it's not too bad. And I'm looking at them going, you're covered with eczema. But they're just used to it. When the dupixin kicks in and the itch goes, it's like they go, oh, my God, I can't believe I am no longer itchy and I'm sleeping. And that's like a life-changing moment. And it happens to, what, 80% of our patients who, who go on it? Ridiculously effective. What's the process for patients to get access to dupixin? It is on the PBS, but it's a very pricey drug. So each patient that goes on it will cost the Australian government about $20,000, roughly. There are some kind of regulatory hurdles to jump through. They have to first be prescribed by a dermatologist or immunologist. You need to have a very high, it's called an easy score, which is the eczema severity index score. You need to have very high quality of life index score. And you need to have failed topical treatments for a period of time before you can then apply to PBS. But if you fail, if you know, jump through all the hoops and patients with bad, bad enough eczema will fulfill those criteria, then it's quite easy to get it. What other treatments are in development? The other treatment which is actually available on PBS is a tablet. It's called upedacitinib. It's a class of medication called small molecule. It's called a JAK inhibitor. Okay, So the JAK inhibitors are a new class of immunosuppressants that are very getting increasing use in all manner of inflammatory diseases like rheumatoid arthritis, inflammatory bowel disease, and atopic eczema. It's a tablet you take by mouth. It is probably as effective as dupilumab, and it's a tablet, so you don't have to inject yourself. The catch is that they are much more immunosuppressive across the board. So you end up with the same kind of conundrum that you get with the broader immunosuppressants. You know, you, you have a high increased risk of viral infections, so HSV, varicella zoster virus. You need to be careful with uh, COVID. If someone on a JAK inhibitor catches COVID, you need antivirals. You need to have an extra dose of 
COVID vaccine. And there's also um, a, a warning that it can increase the risk of certain malignancies. Okay, so it's there and it's available, but it's probably not the first line, particularly in young patients with, with atopic eczema compared with dupilumab. Is there a realistic hope for a cure? That's a difficult question. I mean, most of these disorders where there's a genetic basis, there is no kind of realistic hope for a cure at this point in time. But, you know, never say never. And maybe, maybe Susan, you can, you know, see what you think about that. Is there a hope for a cure? I would tend to agree with your assessment. At this point in time, I don't think that is a realistic option. I think long-term symptom control and management is the way forward. And a final question. What would you say to someone who is suffering from severe eczema but hasn't seen a doctor at this stage? Ross, let's start with you. I think one of the things that would be really important to do is to go to the GP, get a session with them, look towards getting that referral through to the dermatologist. And then, as we've talked about today, there are possibilities, there's new developments that are occurring. So going to the experts, the dermatologist, is a really good sort of start because it's possible that we can make significant changes with people's lives. And as a psychologist, one of the things that the research shows is that the continuation of the eczema can lead to depression, can lead to isolation, withdrawal. And, and in some cases, there's been a paper that's looked at this, even risks of suicide for in the most extreme sort of cases. So there's value sort of there from thinking about the holistic person. So there's the body, but also sort of the, the mental health aspect of it as well. So that'd be my takeaway message. Susan? I would encourage them to seek some help and want them to know that there is hope. There are people with expertise out there who can help them um, and there are many uh, new treatments available and also potentially some further new ones coming out in the future. So I very much encourage them to seek a referral. And Elvin? Yeah, I think there's light at the end of the tunnel. No matter how bad your eczema is, we will find a way to actually help you and uh, don't give up hope because you know, this is this is the golden age of treating inflammatory diseases, and eczema just happens to be one that we are beginning to get a handle on as a medical fraternity. So, you know, this is a good time to seek help for eczema. And that concludes our first Spot Diagnosis Stories About Skin episodes. I hope you enjoyed it and gained some further insights. I would like to thank the education team at the Skin Health Institute. Remember, these podcasts are not meant to replace medical advice. If you have a skin condition that requires attention, we strongly encourage you to see your medical practitioner. For listeners who want information on this subject, a transcript of this episode and links to other resources can be found on our website, spotdiagnosis.org.au. Please share Spot Diagnosis with your friends and colleagues rate and review us. Let us know what you think. We would really appreciate your feedback and any suggestions. Also, just to remind you that Spot Diagnosis is eligible for RACGP and Acrom CPD. Thanks for listening. The Skin Health Institute would like to thank our exclusive institute partner, 
Melbourne Pathology for their support of the Spot Diagnosis podcast.